Welcome to You Can't Get to Heaven in a Miniskirt podcast. My name is Sarah. And I'm Jessica. And this is the podcast where we trigger ourselves by walking down memory lane and going into the deep, dark past of the 2000s and 90s when we were participants in Christianity. And if you would like to find us on social media, you can find us on Instagram and TikTok at Heaven in a Miniskirt and Twitter at MiniskirtPod. Or you can visit our website at heaveninaminiskirt.com. Yay! Yeah, so like Sarah said, we have triggered ourselves a little too much, so we wanted to do a super fun episode today. And that's why we've been a little less, uh, we, we both took some breaks from our, from our podcast social media because it was just a lot. Well, luckily, you know, Elon bought Twitter and Twitter is about to just completely implode on itself. So maybe we're done with Twitter anyway. But yes, we can do social media and bursts. And I really enjoy connecting with other people that have podcasts of similar nature and people that are deconstructing. And it's been really great. But neither of us are big on social media to begin with. It's a different world on Twitter. Like it's worse than 2000s Reddit. What, what was 2000s Reddit like? I don't remember. Uh, well, I feel like if you went on the R Atheist one a lot, <laughs> 2000s Reddit. Yeah, <laughs> it was just super intense. And there were lots of debates, lots of pe- lots of heightened emotions. I think that when people start to deconstruct from religion, there are a lot of heightened emotions. But you have to go through that. You ha- Like, I think you have to go through this angry, you know, atheist bro stage. That's what you did. I mean, you were talking on another podcast. I used to go on the atheism subreddit and make memes and you're angry and you're debating and And you're like an evangelical atheist. Like you're trying to deconvert people like you actually care that much. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You go from like one spectrum to the other and then eventually most of the time settle and you're just like, okay, I can be atheist or I can be agnostic. They can be evangelical. Can we figure out how to get along? Um anyway. Uh, we digress. <laughs> we digress. So what is the podcast about? <laughs> Today, obviously, since you clicked on this, we're talking about the Da Vinci Code. This was on our list of podcast topics. And it was one that I was like, oh, who knows if we'll ever do this. And then I started doing research on more things that were just making me upset and angry and frustrated. And I was like, I want to do something really light and silly. And so I chose the Da Vinci Code. And this was a this was a fun couple weeks getting ready for this one. So Sarah, you just watched the movie. So you're fresh. You watched it this morning. Yeah, this morning. And you saw tom hanks in all of his flowing hair glory yeah (laughs) it's wonderful gotta love tom hanks so yeah i can't even imagine why he did this movie but so we'll start by talking about the plot of the da vinci code i'm sure most people have either read it or seen the movie but it's probably like for most people been about 20 years since you've seen it or read the book or whatever because this book came out in 2003. We could have listeners, Jessica, that are adult humans that weren't born after this came out, you realize. You're so right. Oh my god. That's the moment that you just feel like you're the oldest person in the world. Okay, so this book came out in 2003. It was wildly popular it's 2022 now we don't have the same experiences that we had in 2003 when a book came out and it was popular it was everywhere there weren't these micro trends that we have now and different social media platforms like there was no social media in 2003 it was like newspaper articles and msn news like homepage. i don't know <laughs> yeah it was everywhere It sold over 80 million copies. Last episode, we talked about Josh Harris's I Kissed Eden Goodbye, which sold 1.2 million copies. This sold 
79 million more copies than like you know it sold so many copies it was translated into 44 languages and in 2003 it was only outsold by harry potter and the order of the phoenix which makes sense yeah for sure but i mean if that was just a year that harry potter wasn't released it would have been the best-selling book so it follows a man named robert langdon played by Tom Hanks in the movie, who is a professor of symbology at Harvard. We'll get into that. So basically, some guy gets murdered at the Louvre, and the police think Langdon did it. Langdon and his sidekick, Sophie, go on the run. We find out that the guy that was murdered at the Louvre was the head of an organization called the Priory of Sion, and the Priory of Sion protects the Holy Grail. Long story short, Jesus and Mary Magdalene had babies and a secret organization called Opus Dei is trying to uncover it and I think destroy Mary Magdalene's body. They're trying to destroy the secret and Mary Magdalene's womb or the bloodline is actually the Holy Grail. So that's the whole plot and Priory of Sion is trying to preserve the secret for some fucking reason. (laughs) <laughs> so the premise, I think, is that if they can get Mary's DNA, then they can prove the so-called royal bloodline. But Sophie, Robert Langdon's sidekick, it is a descendant of what they call the Merovingian bloodline. So Jesus's bloodline. So you'll hear the word Merovingian a lot. So the man that was murdered at the Louvre took Sophie in when she was younger and... Then he was murdered because he was the head of the Priory of Sion. He was trying to, like, groom Sophie to be the head of Priory of Sion because she's of the royal bloodline. The guy who kills <laughs> the guy who kills the head of the Priory of Sion is the albino guy that is in Opus Dei, and he's played by Paul Bettany in the movie. And then Robert Langdon just gets roped into all of this for literally no other reason other than he just, like, knows cryptology. And- he's a symbology prof. So... I'm just going to go ahead and start with the inaccuracies. Symbology (laughs) is not a real study, and it's not a department at Harvard. We're just going to start there. So the movie is the only thing that I... I didn't reread the book because... I read the book in 2003. It's pretty long, isn't it? Very long. And I, I, it's one of those books, and I didn't reread it, but I listened to a lot of things about it. It's one of those books where, like, the chapters are super short, and each chapter ends on a cliffhanger, so you have to keep reading. And I remember this being a page-turner. This was an entertaining book. I'm not saying this is a bad book, but... I can't understand the climate where this sold 80 million copies. So, I mean, I'll try not to make this podcast a movie review because that's not what we do here. But this movie fucking sucks. <laughs> this is a terrible movie. I'm not going to lie. I may have scrolled through my social media and zoned out for parts of the movie. I asked you if you liked this movie and you said it was amazing. And I said, are you sure? Because <laughs> I had to force myself to watch it. Because since I'm the one who was presenting this episode, I actually had to watch it. Yeah. And I had to put my phone away and it was it was painful. I mean, it is from 2006. We have to know that this is an older movie. So I really feel like Tom Hanks choosing to do this movie just feels so random. (laughs) But I have to remember that this book was so huge. Of course, they're going to get a huge name like Tom Hanks to play Robert Langdon. I think the movie did well, though, didn't it? At the time. Because honestly, like, I remember going to theaters to see the movie and just like waiting for weeks and being so excited because I loved I loved that book. So box office. Okay, so it made like $300 million. It was number one in the USA during its first week and it grossed more than $111 million, And it was the fifth highest gross of 2006 in the United States. So it was a really popular movie. And this is obviously when everyone was going to the movies. In 
June 2006, it became only the second film of the year to pass the 200 million mark in the U.S. So yeah, quite good. Quite good in the U.S. And I can see why. I mean, we have to remember what 2003 was like. So it's really easy to judge like a movie from the 2000s by today's standards because you're like, oh, this isn't the quality I remember, but... It's long. It drags on. Like, it's not a page turner like the book was. Dude, it's like two and a half hours. And maybe the book wouldn't be now if I were to read it. But at the time, I was like, ooh, this." it was kind of like forbidden. This is questioning Christianity. So you read the book in 03 or 04, like really early on and same. I want you to talk about like what that book meant for you. Entertaining the possibility of there being different stories about what happened in history that there are like parallel versions and things can be covered up and things can be changed, which I think we can all now recognize that it's the one that wins the battle that writes history. Because when we were growing up, this is just an example, we didn't really learn much about residential schools or the experience of the Indigenous people in Canada. It was kind of just like, oh, we all became friends and shared the land. And that is not what happened. So I think for me, it was interesting to think like, maybe Jesus, like, why couldn't he have gotten married? Like, would that impact his divinity? Would that change things? Like, why is it so important that his mother and him were both virgins? So I think it just got me questioning. That That is a question that came across a lot in my mind while I was doing research on this, is that what exactly does that change in Christianity and people's faith if Jesus had sex? I guess it makes him more human, right? But I just don't remember anywhere in the Bible where it says that Jesus was a virgin or Jesus was. It didn't explicitly say that he was a virgin or not, but assuming that he was the son of God and pure and holy and had to be the human sacrifice that's also God. I don't know. I think the whole thing doesn't really make sense logically when you think about it. And the emphasis on virginity, I think, is probably just because purity and sexual purity is so important within Judaism and Christianity. And I also think it's like, okay, well, he was God, so he wouldn't be distracted by like human desires. Yeah, God wouldn't have children the way that a human would have a child. And then it becomes problematic because then you have a bunch of little demigods running around. Like, what is that? (laughs) You know, what is that? mean how does that work yeah yeah it's quite interesting thinking about that point of view because you know watching that movie in 2022 you really can't imagine this would have any repercussions for anyone ever like it's so ridiculous the climate of 2022 is a lot different than the climate of 2003 much more secular i just kind of like did a quick google search what was happening in 2003 this will give you an idea of the climate that everyone was in bush was president and they just announced the war on terror. And I mean, 9-11 was pretty recent. SARS was a thing. Yeah. Remember SARS? Uh, little did we know. It was going to circle back. Um, Arnold Schwarzenegger was just elected the governor of California. Oh my gosh. This is the year that Greta Thornburg was born. Was born? And Olivia uh, Rodrigo was also born in this year. No. So re- you really want to feel old. <laughs> but she got her driver's license. <laughs> <laughs> Shit, they shouldn't be driving yet. No. iTunes was invented in 2003. So let's just back up. And this is pre-Facebook. Like This is pre-Facebook. This is pre-iPhone. I think like the video iPod might have been a thing like shortly after this. So in 2003, you had your limited edition Olympic version Nokia flip phone. Oh my God, it was the best. Yeah. (laughs) Did you text on that? Yeah, I could. It was five cents to receive text and five cents to send. Yeah, the days before unlimited texting were wild. So that was the wild west of communication. So we communicated pretty much exclusively on MSN Messenger. 
Yes. Anyone who is under the age of 20, if you're ever listening to this, you're going to be like, what the fuck are you talking about? Yeah. So, but I said, this is totally an aside, but the other day, by mistake, I called my iMusic iTunes. I'd say that's a pretty common mistake. Is it not the same thing? (laughs) Oops. I, I don't know. It's not iTunes anymore, though, I don't think. And when things come out, I still call them CDs. I was like, Taylor Swift's new CD. My partner's <laughs> like, it's not a CD. It's it's an album. You've, it's an album. Like when Taylor Swift came out with Midnight's, you were like, oh, it's a new CD. Like I said to Google, I was like, hey, Google, play Taylor Swift's new CD. And then it just like brought up a random playlist. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Google Google's even like, mm, okay, boomer. Like I know. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. But yes, I think you were saying about how different it was. So that's so that gives you an idea of what 2003 was. So the conspiracy theory climate also was very different in 2003. In 2022, there is a very specific type of conspiracy theory climate. As we know, there's QAnon, there's lots of people that believe all sorts of weird shit. In 2003, there was definitely people that believed in conspiracy theories, but because there was no social media, they didn't really gather in the way that they can now. And I'd say most of the conspiracies were like Bigfoot, the Loch Ness Monster, UFOs. What else is there? There isn't much. Like I just feel like the, con- the conspiracy theory climate was way less dangerous back then. Now it's actually terrifying and it could bring down democracy. But hey, let's just keep going. So then this book was released. And there's all sorts of insinuations in this book. But I'd say what scares people the most is that Jesus had a wife and children and that puts into question his divinity and dan brown came out and said that all of this was true like he was like this is all factual information i think him coming out and saying it was true is what that's what scared everyone that scared everyone shitless now in 2022 we know that people will just hear something and be like that's true and not look into it at all and not use any critical thinking skills and there were just so many inaccuracies in this book but the fact that he came out and said it was true i think really scared christian so you read the da vinci code but you also read like other books yeah i read the da vinci code yes but then of course there was all of the christian books that were published to counteract the da vinci code and point out that it was in fact not true and that the divinity of jesus was still a thing so the da vinci code A Quest for Answers by Josh McDowell. I wonder if he has any relation to Sean McDowell. Yes. Yes. Isn't it his dad? Oh, my God. No. Are you for real? Yes. Josh McDowell is Sean McDowell. No. 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 What? You didn't know that? My life has come full circle. I didn't know that. You didn't know that? So what the what the fuck? So, okay. Sean McDowell is how old? How old is he? 40. 46. So, no. So this dad, I was reading his books and now I'm reading the son's books for very, very different <laughs> you, reasons. You're oh personally keeping these men in business, Sarah. Okay. I just need to process that for a second. Jeez. <laughs> what's with like, what's with like these, I don't know, just generation upon generation of people being pastors. Yes. Oh my God. Yeah. What is with that? So did Josh McDowell write like a decoding the Da Vinci Code book? Yeah, essentially. Yeah. It was like Da Vinci Code myth or fact oh i should have read that it was interesting though because like he he did go point by point through why the bible didn't include certain books that were not canonical weren't in the biblical canon and he talked about that there was no historical proof for mary magdalene and jesus getting married and yada 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 and that is accurate 
<laughs> because yes. because there really isn't. And that's a really good segue into our next portion, okay. which is where did this idea even come from? Dan Brown says that this is all accurate and that he pulled on these historical references and he made this book that was full of just complete horseshit. So the book that he pulled that particular idea from, now he pulled from a few different books, but the most interesting book that he pulled from was a book called Holy Blood and Holy Grail. And they do talk about this in the movie. They, you know, when they go to Sir Ian McKellen's house and Ian McKellen is having his PowerPoint presentation, yeah. he pulls out the book Holy Blood and Holy Grail. And he was like, this is proof. So Holy Blood and Holy Grail was a book released in 1982. It was written by Michael Banier, Richard Lee, and Henry Lincoln. They put forward the idea that Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene and that they had several children and that their descendants, their descendants of Jesus and Mary, emigrated to southern France. Then the descendants married noble people and they created what was called the Merovingian dynasty. The dynasty was actually a real dynasty. This is something that's true. The dynasty did exist. And they ruled over what is now like the France-German area in the 5th century until 751. Okay. So like for like 150 years, 250 years, I can do math. <laughs> they, they ruled over just this area that doesn't even exist anymore, like in the current borders. So they say that the Merovingian dynasty's throne is still upheld and protected by the Priory of Sion, and that the Holy Grail, quote unquote, actually refers to this bloodline, the Merovingian bloodline, which is the nobles plus Jesus. So Mary Magdalene's womb is the Holy Grail. Sounds pretty legit. From what I understand, they're making this up. They're just taking elements of history and drawing lines between them. Exactly. And we're going to dive further into, in a few minutes, the Priory of Sion and how that even came to be. Okay. Basically, Dan Brown use this book as a reference there's so much more to the book but it's pretty anti-semitic so we're just not really it's not interesting it's just like it's just it's not good so just know that the ideas didn't come from dan brown himself okay he used a book as a reference and claimed that they were actual facts so moving on with that part of the story actually this is just a little aside but it's kind of funny is that Richard Lee and Michael Banier, they were two of the authors on the Holy Blood and Holy Grail. They sued Dan Brown for copyright infringement after the book came out. Yes. And this was like, this was pretty mainstream media. You might have just like randomly heard about it. So they sued him for copyright infringement, but also claimed that a name of a character in Brown's book was an anagram for Lee and Banier. So the character's name is Sir Lee Teabing. That's who Ian McKellen plays. So Lee, obviously, is Lee. And then T-Bing is an anagram of Beignet. Yeah. And then also Henry Lincoln just decided to stay out of the action on this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so they were like, you used our names and also used our book without our permission. So they actually sued Random House, which published a Da Vinci Code, but they also published Holy Blood and Holy Grail. So they're suing their own publisher. <laughs> they lost the lawsuit for a number of reasons, but one of them being that they claimed that this was a history book. And you can't plagiarize a history book. And because Brown used this book amongst others for background information and was like, these are history books. They're they're not claiming to be fiction. They're not claiming to be a story. They're claiming to be actual history. So they lost. Dan Brown wins. And that was kind of the news about it. So that was just kind of a funny little story. And they lost. They had to pay like three million pounds. That sucks. Anyway, so isn't that something? That is something. Now... After I found out about the lawsuit, I really wanted to look into 
other inaccuracies in the book, but also particularly the Priory of Sion because it's talked about a lot in the Holy Blood and Holy Grail. And turns out that this is also a load of shit. So it's just loads of shit all the way down the line here. The Priory of Sion is real in the way that at one point in time was a name of an organization. I'd say that's the only accuracy we have here. Buckle up. It's a really weird story. Priory of Sion was invented in 1956 by a man named Pierre Plantard in France. So this is there's a lot of French names and a lot of French things. So I have to use my amazing French accent when I'm saying them. So, so sorry for all the listeners. He registered it as a new association in a town in France. So he just like registered it as a business. Okay. The group was devoted to supporting of building low cost housing and criticizing local government. Like that's all they did. Pierre Plantard and an author named Gerard, Gerard de Cide wrote a book together called L'Or de Rennes. So gold of Rennes. So R-E-N-N-E-S. So Rennes is a village. Okay. So the gold of this village, Rennes. So the book claims that a man named Francois Berenger Saunier, who is an actual French Catholic priest at Chateau de Rennes, found a secret treasure, which was two parchments. And he found the secret treasure in like a pillar of a church. And these two parchments were proof that the Merovingian bloodline still existed. So the last king of this bloodline that like actually existed, um, he was assassinated in 679 AD. And then when he was assassinated, the bloodline died with him, but not according to these parchments. So the parchments also stated that Pierre Plantard, who's one of the authors along with Gerard, was a direct descendant of this king who was assassinated. And it also heavily suggests that the Priory of Sion was involved in hiding the secret. So then Pierre and Gerard, the two authors of this book, Lodren, had a falling out over book royalties. And then Gerard admitted that the parchments were fake. Good job, Gerard. I know, Gerard just spilling the secrets. Then we discover that during the time that the book was being written, Pierre started to deposit false documentation to forge the history of the Priory of Sion. And the parchments from the book were also part of the false documentation that he had forged. So we find out that British script writer Henry Lincoln, who's one of the authors for Holy Blood and Holy Grail, read this book in 1969, which led him to be inspired and then to create two BBC documentaries and also start writing Holy Blood and Holy Grail. So... Holy Blood and Holy Grail was then used as source material for the best-selling 2003 novel, The Da Vinci Code. So you start to realize. You said there's a lot of layers of bullshit. Like, So basically, it starts with Laudren, it goes to Holy Blood and Holy Grail, and then The Da Vinci Code, and it's none of it is true. It sounds like QAnon, like this thing, and we put it with this thing, but it's not true, but this thing, and now it's part of this. Yes, and then, and this is history. So disjointed. You know, you could say like a lot of histories. We could say the Bible is this way, but this is a very proven set of false stories that are being drawn upon to write other books that include false stories. It's just, it's crazy how they built on that. So that is where the legend of Mary Magdalene and Jesus came from. So that is like just one of the things that's false about the book. Now, if Dan Brown is just like, this is a fictional book and, you know, I made it up, then yeah, this is just a fun, fanciful story. But the fact that he was like, this is real, this is real. There are some elements of the book that are real, though. Like when he talks about certain symbols, like... Yeah, like the 
the fact that the Mona Lisa exists is also factual. And the Louvre. And the Louvre. <laughs> but he says in the Pyramid of the Louvre that there's 666 panes of glass. And that's not true. There's actually 673 panes of glass. So just little things. Shit. It's actually not 666. It's 673. But 666 sounds a lot cooler. So let's just throw that in the book. And it would be way harder to fact check back in 2003. Yeah. And it's, again, fine if Dan Brown wants to be like, oh, this is all made up for a story. But he presents this as facts. At, at the beginning of the book, there's a... It's not a preface. It's not a introduction. But there's like a page at the beginning of the book that says these things are real. This is factual information. So I'm not trying to be like the Christians were right. And this is crap. But it is crap. And the Christians, unfortunately, were right here. But, you know, they got a lot more scared than they needed to be. Well, I think, again, I think you need to do some personal reflection and questioning if you are super threatened by anyone raising any point that's going to counteract your worldview. If you can't stand up against criticism, then you got to look back and see, is this worldview actually solid? What you're saying is true. Anyone who's listening who has deconstructed has all had their world shattered. And it's really, really painful. Human nature is to search for the truth. And there's everyone's searching for meaning. And a lot of people find meaning in Christianity. And I personally did at one point. And I have found meaning in other places. And I have so many times in my life been like this is it this is the thing this is the thing yes this is the thing and so many times i've been like oh that's actually not the thing and to confront that realization is super painful and it's more painful the longer you've been doing it and more painful the more you believe it it's also very humbling because you're like i have no idea and the emotion of shame comes up and we can talk about Brene Brown for six hours because she's so brilliant and I love her but shame is so uncomfortable and I personally really hate feeling shame and then I turn my shame into anger and then I direct my anger at the people that are telling me that what I believe to be true is not real so that's exactly what you know these people are doing with the da Vinci Code they're taking their shame and nervousness about their belief and then they're just turning it around, turning into anger and then throwing it right back out there. And like you said, if you're doing that, then your belief in this thing is probably it's probably not that solid. I think it's all, it's all fear based, though, right? Because if you believe that someone their salvation going to heaven depends on the divinity of Christ, then to question that like that's like pulling out everything from underneath their feet. It's like, no, but like this, this family member, this friend I have, like, I want them to go to heaven. I want them to follow the straight and narrow path. Yeah, because if heaven isn't real, then my whole life has been a waste. Exactly. Pascal's wager. Do you know that? Is that like the sunk cost fallacy? So it's essentially that like, if God exists, and I believe in God, I'll go to heaven, which is infinitely good. If God exists, and I don't believe, then I'll go to hell, which is infinitely bad. And then if I believe and then God doesn't exist, well, then no harm done. Nothing happens kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. I still think that's stupid. But but it also neglects that, you know, there's like a million different gods that people believe in. And maybe you got it wrong, Christians. And it's, you know, it's the Muslim God. And then you're screwed. Maybe. So, so we talked about the priory. We talked about some other things that were false. 
I want to talk about some things that are somewhat false and somewhat true. That's always a really fun one where you're like, it's kind of true, but kind of not. So one of the secret societies that they talk about in the Da Vinci Code is Opus Dei. Opus Dei is an actual Catholic organization. And some of the things that he does talk about are factual. And some of the things he talks about are a bit extreme. I don't think they self-flagellate. I don't think that they would agree with... Is flagellate the right word? Flagellate? Yeah. Isn't flagellate like... (laughs) Am I totally... (laughs) Flagulate. Flog. Yeah, self-flogging. <laughs> oh, either, either it was religious discipline or sexual gratification. Okay, okay. <laughs> so it could be, it could go good. either way. It could go either Okay, way. we're good. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, uh, I don't think you should say that, Jessica. <laughs> what did you think it meant? I thought it had a sexual connotation. <laughs> oh my God. So self-flagulate. I'm still going to say it. I, I think that was like one of the biggest ones that Opus Dei was like, we don't do that. But I mean, I don't know. I'm not in Opus Dei. I don't know if people self-flagellate uh, non-sexually, Sarah. <sighs> okay. So they have a, a statement that they released. Do you want, Would you like to read it? Yes, I would love to. Okay. The Da Vinci Code likewise gives a bizarre and inaccurate betrayal of the Catholic institution Opus Dei. The numerous inaccuracies range from simple factual errors to outrageous and false depictions of criminal or pathological behavior. For example, the novel depicts members of Opus Dei practicing gruesome corporal mortifications and murdering people, implies that Opus Dei coerces or brainwashes people, suggests that Opus Dei has drugged new members to induce religious experience, and insinuates that Opus Dei bailed out the Vatican Bank in return for its establishment as a personal prelature. All of this is absurd nonsense. Okay, so they're like, fuck you. This is not, <laughs> this is <Yeah>. not real. <laughs> Which I think is fair. Like, again, I don't know. I'm not a part of Opus Dei. But if it goes along with everything else in the book, it's probably either a little bit hyperbolic or a little bit just not at all real. Yeah, and when you combine those two, it's just a lot of bullshit, you know? Yes. So they're just basically an institution of the Catholic Church, and they have been kind of compared to, like, the Freemasons of the Catholic Church. And the Freemasons, again, show up in other Dan Brown novels, which makes me laugh when I saw that comparison. I was like, what all the Freemasons? It's really weird. Like, people... People love ritual and people love feeling like they're a part of something. So obviously things like the Freemasons and Opus Dei and cults, you know, in general are very popular to humans because people just love feeling like they're a part of something and a part of something kind of extreme. There's one thing you said wrong, though. You called Bigfoot a conspiracy theory earlier. And? And I believe in Bigfoot. Do you actually? (laughs) Why? What a random conspiracy theory to live to die on. When I was younger, a family friend growing up, in Western Canada was like a famous Bigfoot researcher. He since passed and he was like one of the number one Bigfoot researchers in the world. And when I was a child, we went to his house and I saw the casts of the footprints. I don't know, man, like casts, big ass footprints, like the casts of the Bigfoot footprints. (laughs) I don't know what to say, okay? I mean, okay, there's no, okay, I am, there's nothing wrong with believing in Bigfoot. Bigfoot as a conspiracy theory is relatively harmless and just fun, you know? They're, it's fun. Yeah, it's fun. I don't, I don't believe in it, but I don't not not believe in it. That is, that's fantastic and hilarious. And I can't believe you don't believe in Jesus, but you believe in Bigfoot. But there's nothing that I saw within Christianity like that, right? So Bigfoot has survived in my mind as like a potential, a potential truth. 
Okay, so other just other parts of the book that are really interesting is they talk a lot about Mary Magdalene. And the depiction of her in parts of the Bible is that she was a prostitute. And that has its origins in Luke's gospel, where it says that she was cured of seven demons. And all four canonical gospels in the New Testament, which is like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they noted Mary's presence at Jesus' crucifixion. But only the gospel of Luke discussed her role in Jesus's life and ministry and only did they say that she was cured of seven demons and never actually said she was a prostitute so what do you know about Mary in the Bible besides that yeah I'd heard the the theory that she was a former prostitute I know that she was very close with Jesus and would often travel with the disciples and would help support the disciples financially and she was allegedly, I think, in just one of the Gospels, the first person that Jesus appeared to. Like, he appeared to a group of women. It was like Mary Magdalene, the other Mary, and Joanna. And then people didn't believe her because they're like, why would you believe a woman? Ayo. <laughs> why would you believe a woman, honestly? And then pastors were like, it's amazing that Jesus appeared first to a woman because people wouldn't believe women because women. Because women. Women make shit up all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Women are stupid. He's so progressive because he believed that they were humans. Yeah. And then there was like the claims that there are non-canonical gospels. And I was talking to you about this yesterday and you said you knew some things. So I was wondering if you'd want to talk on it, if you remember anything from your past experiences. Yeah. Research. So I'm going to go full on just talking about the canon of scripture. Yay. I might get dates messed up. I haven't, I haven't read into this, but essentially in the first second third century there are a lot of books and things going around that were claiming to be written by followers of jesus but a bunch of religious leaders sat down at the council of nicaea in the third century i believe and they allegedly were inspired by the holy spirit to choose certain books that would go into the biblical canon sarah remember remember the holy spirit's a pretty cool guy he's a pretty cool he's a pretty cool guy <laughs> and so they were apparently inspired by this really cool guy to put all the books into the Bible. But problem alert here. If you look at the Catholic Church or the Orthodox Church or the Protestant Church, different canons of scripture. The Catholics have extra books in their Bible. So Christians now can't even agree what should be in the canon. So uh, anyway, there were these things that were like non-canonical books that were brought forward and they're like, for whatever reason, they did not jive with the uh, the coherent, inerrant, errorless book of scripture. Errorless. inspired. <laughs> no contradictions whatsoever. No contradictions here. <laughs> and I think sometimes it takes a miracle. To... <laughs> I just, okay. But I'm sorry. Like people that say that there's no contradictions, like people are like, that's the Old Testament God. I'm like, but God's on changing. That's what he says. I just, I can't. I can't reconcile it all, and that's probably explains a lot. There's people in the world that require reconciliation of thoughts, and you are one of those people. And there's people that can live their lives without reconciling these thoughts. They can compartmentalize it. And again, you're not one of those people. I'm not one of those people. And that's why we're doing this podcast, because we couldn't we couldn't handle that. <sighs> yeah. So essentially, the canon of scripture was formed. And and that is actually talked about in the Da Vinci Code and somewhat accurate, what, what is described in the Da Vinci Code, which is surprising to me, to be honest. And those the books are interesting. You can read them. Did you see the old sea scroll like this? I saw um, some pictures 
of the book of Mary Magdalene or the book of Mary could have been Jesus's mother Mary I'm not sure or the other Mary don't forget about the other Mary there's another Mary oh jeez <laughs> no oh, she's God. actually referred to in the bible as the other Mary <laughs> It's like Mary, Jesus's mother, Mary Magdalene, and then the other Mary. Imagine being the other Mary, the other one. Oh my God. Fantastic. Yeah. They got to organize that somehow. That sounds like us in the nineties, the other Jessica, the other Sarah. There's just too many. (laughs) So minus 30 AD, they're like, all right, who's here? We got Mary Magdalene, Mary, mother of Jesus, the other Mary. The other Mary. It'd be so shitty to be the other Mary. So then- so then I saw the scrolls or the the parchment. They're all they all had like symbols and like obviously some an ancient language. It might have been Aramaic, Hebrew, or Greek. Those are the languages that the Bible was written in. Okay. And I find it really fascinating because a lot of these scrolls were very damaged. So you're really putting together broken information to begin with. And then everything goes through thousands of translations and thousands of interpretations. And we get, you know, the new international version of the Bible that we have today. But the Dead Sea Scrolls were very interesting because they found them. And the Dead Sea Scrolls actually really supported the canon of scripture or like the consistency of the books, like how long and accurately had been passed down for. They were in between the third century BCE and the first century. And so some of them actually showed like prior to Christ, they were the oldest records and they were the first records of biblical texts that were before Jesus's birth. So it was interesting to see that those Old Testament books had been maintained that long. So there was a lot, like a lot of people are like, oh, the Bible's changed a lot, blah, blah, blah. But it is one of the most well-maintained historical books. Like they were very, very meticulous when they would go through. I think a lot of things do get lost in translation because like there's no perfect translation. Like some languages don't have the the exact same words. And Do you want to do a whole episode on the Dead Sea Scrolls? This sounds really interesting. Actually. I would love to do that. It's actually it's actually really interesting. Not depressing. It's it's a good not depressing one. Yeah, it's a good. It's just interesting. I know someone that dedicated his whole life to finding Noah's Ark. What? But he was like next level. Like he made his basement look like an Egyptian tomb. He was obsessive. He spent his whole life trying to find Noah's Ark. Like he was convinced that he was finding Noah's Ark. But I would love, like speaking of episodes, we got to do Noah's Ark. There are so many museums, creationist museums, and they're like, we found this thing at this level of the earth. There is? I didn't know this. Yeah. Oh, my God. Christian museums. We got to look those up. <gasps> Christian museums. they're like, we found dinosaur footprints next to human footprints. So humans and dinosaurs lived at the same time and the earth is 6,000 years old. <laughs> oh, my God. This podcast can go for eternity. You've never heard of Christian museums? Who are you? No. I mean, okay, I'm not terribly surprised that they exist. <laughs> okay, so... We'll, we'll keep talking about Da Vinci Code because that's why that's why our listeners are here because they're like, oh my God, my favorite book ever. The, one of the most glaring inaccuracies in the Da Vinci Code is when they talk about the Last Supper. Oh, yes. I did read quite a few things about this. It's going to depend on the historian that you read, what they think about. It wasn't Mary next to him. It was John. So exactly. It was John. The disciple that he loved. Oh. So was Jesus gay? That could be Oh my God. There, there's a whole theory for that. Oh, well, like, so it is John from historian points of view and that John is always painted with a feminine touch to distinguish him as the youngest apostle. But also he's always depicted as young, beardless and androgynous in paintings. Like that's how it was when you painted the disciples. You always painted John like that. So like it's John. Like that's it. It's not Mary. 
Yeah, exactly. So that was like something that a lot of historians were like, fuck this. That is not true. Yeah, this is John. It's not Mary Magdalene. It's not the other Mary. It's it's John. John, maybe Jesus's gay lover. We don't know. There's like actually more of a case for that, I think, from my very limited research than Mary Magdalene. <laughs> do you want to write The Da Vinci Code 2 by Sarah? No, but I would do a podcast on Jesus's sexuality. <laughs> um, so I do have a story time with Sarah. Oh my God. I always forget. Cue the music. Welcome to Storytime with Sarah. Sit back, relax, and enjoy a story from our favorite book, the Bible. Hey, wait, so I gotta get it up. Because I actually didn't really think about it until during this episode, but I got it and I'm inspired. Well, what I love about you, though, is that you don't have to prepare it because it's already in that noggin of yours. <laughs> Burn into my goddamn brain. <laughs> Fuck me. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, okay. Ready? I'm super ready. I've never been more ready. All right. This is found in the book of John, chapter 20, 11 to 18. Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and one at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. So what was going on if she did not recognize him? This is what I want to know. Like, she didn't realize it was him, and he asked her, woman, why are you crying? Was it, like, just the thing back then to be like, woman, woman, make me a sandwich. No, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned to him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Essentially, all the disciples, Jesus like appears to the disciples. And Thomas, I'm just going to include this because I love, I love Thomas. He's a great guy. Thomas, also known as Didymus, <laughs> one of the 12. Like, like P. Diddy? <laughs> I never, never knew that. Didymus? Right. So Didymus. That sounds like a Pokemon. <laughs> <laughs> does. And now uh, Diglett is evolving into Didymus. <laughs> Okay, so one of the 12 was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the others were like, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nails in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm with you, did he miss? Yeah. So uh, a week later, they're at the house and knock, knock on the door. Jesus shows up and he says, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said, my Lord and my God. And Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen yet and believed. So blessed are those who have blind faith. And I, you don't want to be a doubting Thomas. Like that was like a line when I was growing up. What? Yeah, you don't want to be like Thomas because he doubted God. He 
he needed to see proof. You know what's funny is that I was like, yeah, Thomas. And you're like, no, not Thomas. Did he miss his very fave? He's like... He's the only one who has critical thinking skills. To be fair, to Mary Magdalene's credit, she believes him because she sees him. But at the same time, Jesus says, I will like ascend to join my God and your God. If Jesus thought he was God, would he refer to God the Father as God and not himself as God? I don't think Jesus thought he was God. You don't think? No, he calls himself the son of man, which is literally a son of a man. Yeah, I, oh my God, I have so, I have so many thoughts just swimming through my brain and I really, really, there's a lot of meat in this story that I want to talk about. Yeah. I want to talk about how you said that when you were younger and they said, don't be, um, a doubter, right? A doubting Thomas. A doubting Thomas. And as soon as you said that, that felt very cult-like, like any cult, it's like, don't question just do what you're told and if you question then you're um a suppressive person you're you're supposed to have the faith of a child you're supposed to have blind acceptance of doctrine right blind acceptance of the doctrine that you are being presented whether it's the bible or scientology or I don't know. What other cults are there? Nexium. But honestly, like, if you look at the main thing that has helped humans progress to the point we are at, it is the scientific method. And the scientific method is based on doubt. Because you have a hypothesis and you have to question it and you have to try and disprove it too, right? Yeah. But that's literally like the point of Christianity is to have blind faith. Like that's upheld. Like you're superior if you just accept it. Yeah, that is wild. When you really break it down and put it that way, it feels so dark that if you just shut up and do as you're told, you're going to be regarded as a higher being in the church. I wasn't the ideal person to bring into the more intense parts of Christianity. Like the New Frontiers Church that we went to, they didn't grab onto me like they grabbed onto you. I think they they did try to recruit me to the church a little bit, but not like they did with you. Yeah. They also, I mean, when when I was working in the UK that year as a youth leader and doing the discipleship program, I was like straight up told by my supervising pastor, Andrew Wilson, you're not allowed to read these books on theistic evolution. Because your faith is not strong enough to stand these criticisms. <laughs> Whoa. Whoa. But if the criticisms are so strong, then is that not a red flag? Yeah. No, no, no. Because basically he's like, your blind faith isn't strong enough. And you question too much already. Yeah. Like, you'll believe the science. I was like the worst, though. Oh, my God. I was the worst. You would have been the most annoying person to have there. I don't know why they would have let you go. I know. It's definitely (laughs) hard to reconcile it all and obviously was impossible for me in that context. But yeah, when when it comes down to it, one thing I wanted to highlight about the story of Jesus appearing to Mary Magdalene, it was actually huge at the time because women were were not seen as a reliable witness to give testimony. And the fact that Jesus appeared to a woman showed that he valued women and he believed that women were equal and women were worthy of spreading his word. So Da Vinci Code. Did Jesus appear to Mary first? Because they were lovers. (gasps) They were lovers. But also she didn't recognize him. So were they lovers? What if he had a disguise? Well, maybe he was like really dirty when he died. He went to the spa, his nails were dead. And he was like... (laughs) Well, he like, he's God now. So he's probably all cleaned up. Uh, Da Vinci Code, if you were to seriously rate this movie from one star to five stars. It would not be a four. What did I say? Did I say 4.67? You said 4.37, and I was like, that is generous. Roger Ebert gave it three stars out of five. 
I can't imagine why. He thought that the movie was better than the book. And I was like, no way. No, 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 no. The book is clearly better. In 2006, my rating probably would have actually been a 4.27. Yeah. Today, we're looking at maybe like like a 2.47. It's an anagram for what it previously was. Ooh. I studied symbology at Harvard. <laughs> <laughs> I, by the way, love that it's Harvard. It's always Harvard. It's always Harvard. Yeah. How do we make this person the smartest? Just throw Harvard in. Oh, God. But I agree with you about the 2006 rating. Mine would have been very similar. If I were to rate it now, if I were to just watch this movie and be like, I've never seen it before and then watch it, I actually would have turned it off. It is so unwatchable. <laughs> it is not. It is so boring. <laughs> I would have given, I would have been like, this is 0.5 stars. Do you know what I complained about all weekend? What? I was like, fuck, I have to watch The Da Vinci Code and it's two and a half hours. <laughs> it's so long. So I was going to watch it in like half hour increments because I was like, I don't have time for this shit. This whole movie could have just been an email. Like, that's how I feel. Like, get a lawyer. Be like, I didn't kill this guy because I have an alibi. And then the end. Okay, that's it. I think uh, all my notes. You notice? I think you need to say thank you to me because... I stopped doodling during the podcast, so there's no pen clicking. Oh, just so you know. <laughs> I literally, Sarah, <laughs> you wanted to kill me. during the masturbation episode. I at the beginning, I texted you and I was like, "Oh, it's it's just funny." And then after a while, I was like, "If I have to take another fucking pen click, I'm gonna lose my goddamn mind." <laughs> uh, yeah, that's what you were doing. That's the noise. It was the click of the, you putting the top on and off. So. The Da Vinci Code, I feel like we covered a lot of ground. That's all I have. Do you have anything else that you'd like to sign off with, Sarah? Did you know that Dan Brown got divorced for numerous affairs? <laughs> I'm so happy you have that random fact. Cut. It's done. Are you serious? Who would sleep with Dan Brown? The other Mary. The other, the other Mary. <laughs> that was so funny. I think I'm so <laughs> That's fun. the end. On that note, um, thank you so much for that information about Dan Brown. Thank you for sticking around till the end, because I stuck around till the end of this movie for you today, Jessica. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I wouldn't recommend going to watch it. Uh, take our word that it's pretty terrible. If you do watch it, I'm not going to apologize, because I told you not to do it. Exactly. <laughs> Goodbye. Bye. With that, I bid you au revoir. That's a wrap. That's it. That's French because the book's set in France. We never talked about that. It's in French. <laughs>